Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Arts and Crafts, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I'm Todd. And I am Cullen. Dream mustache hairs, dream. I can't wait. I cannot wait. <laughs> this is the podcast where Todd and I uh, show each other films that the other one would not normally watch willingly uh, under other circumstances. Um, I like exploitation horror and in general genre films. I like art cinema, pretension, uh, <laughs> experimental, avant-garde, on and on and on. Hence, arts and crafts. Exactly. So we are back to our regular uh, format this time around with just a slight difference. We're continuing our coverage of the films we saw at this year's Virginia Film Festival. We left two of them out of the uh, general coverage we did on the last two episodes. And we're uh, coming back to them now so we can talk about them in full. These are films that we assign to each other as per the usual format. And they fall as much as possible within the, uh, the parameters that we've set for the film selections that we do on this show. Exactly. The only difference being... Haha. <laughs> I did not make it to screen the film that I assigned Todd. And Colin did not, or I did not make <laughs> it to screen the film that I assigned Colin. So we have like baby birds finally taking wing out of the nest. I've decided that I've shown Todd enough uh, genre films for him to spread his wings and go and fly and watch <laughs> one on his own. And, and even knowing that, that Colin was going to be... Um, sitting through a Guy Madden film feature length all by himself. I still had full confidence that, that he wouldn't break out into sweats or, or have a panic and, and he would be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so as we, as, as Todd just alluded to, he asked me to watch. Guy Madden's Forbidden Room, which is his most recent release. Yep, 2015. And I asked Todd to go screen The Wave, uh, a, a Norwegian film from this year, directed by Roar Utaug. This is about that time where we go ahead and flip a coin to figure out who goes first. I'm about to flip. You can call right. heads, tails, heads, buffalo. All right. A buffalo. And we have buffalo. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So I won the toss. Eh, nothing new there. Nothing new at all. <laughs> so that means that we're going to start off with... Ruar Utaugs. The Wave. Um, I was quite um, excited about um, going um, to my uh, big Paramount screening on a Friday night and big action film. If I'm going to see what is um, effectively a catastrophe drama or a disaster film, as we like to call them, um, obviously I want to see it on the, the finest big screen that I can. And the Paramount is way up there. So that was quite a treat. All right, so The Wave is a, like I said, a Norwegian um, disaster film, and I will openly admit to having seen very few disaster films in my life. However, I think I have a nice beat on uh, the formulaic approach to disaster films, and very quickly um, started realizing I'd probably seen more than I realized, because I started drawing some pretty strong comparisons, and within the first few minutes, I knew exactly where the film was going, as you typically do in these films. So The Wave held very, very true to disaster film formula. 
Um, but let's go ahead and give you a little bit of a synopsis. I'm going to um, I'm going to read what the film festival gave us because I like to do that, and this is what you would have seen if you were digging through the pamphlets trying to pick a film. This disaster drama by director Ruar Utaug is Norway's submission for the upcoming Academy Award Best Foreign Language Film. Best, based on the real 1934 tsunami that hit Norway, the film takes place in the present day when a mountain falls into the Geranger Ford, I'm probably saying that terribly wrong, causing a giant wave to come crashing down on a large tourist attraction. With spectacular world backdrops and strong performances, the wave has hit at the, was a hit at the Toronto International Film Festival. So that didn't give you much in the way of synopsis. So as far as synopsis goes, we open up with these large crane um, tracking shots of a Jeep winding around this lovely mountain landscape, um, really stunning mountain landscape, to tell you the truth, and, um, and following this Jeep for a gratuitously long time as the intro of the film comes in, um, we all realize that the main protagonist is driving the Jeep, even though you never get any shots on the inside of the Jeep. Um, and they continue um, as kind of the intro of the film and as a um, means to set up the landscape, the atmosphere, and really to give you a tone of the menacing nature of the atmosphere. Then there was something really interesting that happened. Um, and there's a lot of these throughout this film. Um, the, the combination of what I see as a Hollywood formula genre adopted by a European filmmaker with the sensibilities of a European filmmaker mm -hmm. um, coming from a very different context to where in Europe, obviously, um, artistic techniques tend to be more integrated into their mainstream cinema. And so right at the end of this long sequence of the Jeep driving around the mountains, you have one shortcut, I believe it's a medium cut, into the Jeep for a very short period of time after these very long, graceful shots. And then you cut to the Jeep pulling into the house. I realize this is a very small thing, but it was very different than how American cinema would have done it. American cinema would have kept this very flowing. You would have had the long, wide shots, and then the next shot you would have gone into would have been the Jeep pulling into the house. You would not have had the in-between medium shot that was very short and kind of jolting. Mm. And so I don't know if it was one of those things that it was almost like a mistake or if, because it really threw the rhythm off of that graceful intro, um, where you're supposed to flow into this peaceful household and meet right. the family, and instead it was kind of a jolting um, shortcut there for a second. So once he pulls in, he goes inside, and you get exactly what you expect. The father walks in, who is Christian, um, a very common-looking man. He's very scruffy, um, very much fits the role. He doesn't have that... Um, lead actor savvy, um, which I loved immediately. Instead, he was an everyday man. Um, he's a geologist, um, scraggly hair, overgrown, that's been watching this mountain for years as the geologist on site. And he um, has an entire team there that their entire job is to watch these mountains. So he pulls in and he has his moment with his family. Very realistic, very toned down, very subtle, you very much believe the relationship between him and his children and the relationship between him and his wife. Um, his wife is um, underneath the sink fixing plumbing. Mm. Um, she's a very tough woman. I thought that was a great way of personifying her from the beginning and to set up what was to come in the future. That, um, that she asks her husband, who is a very intelligent geologist, to hand her a plumbing wrench. He hands her the wrong wrench. <laughs> um, the son quickly reaches in, the teenage son, hands her the correct wrench, and he said, how did you know that? And the son's like, who doesn't know what a plumbing wrench is, Dad? 
You know, very cute little moment. Uh-huh. And um, maybe a little foreshadowing. Exactly. A little hardwiring. A, a lot of foreshadowing. <laughs> and so, obviously, once again, very much sticking to the formula of a disaster film, beat to beat, point to point, and yet so much more subtlety, so much more realism, um, which I really, really loved. And to add to the realism, once we went into the interpersonal scenes and left the big graceful crane shot intros, we mostly stayed with handheld and steady cam work from that point on, hmm. which once again, very much held to the realism. American cinema does the same thing in action films, but they make it this chaotic handheld intentionally, particularly the Michael Bay-esque. Shaky cam. Right, it's shaky cam, which is nothing but a headache. This was honest handheld work. As he enters in with the family, we realize that they are preparing and packing for a move. So they have been, he's been living here, working this job as the ge- the head geologist with a team that very much spends all of their time in a very dark room with a lot of computers and monitors and, and you know gadgets that, that tell them exactly what's going on with the mountain and every crick and every crack and every water change they have to check up on. But nothing ever happens. At the point that he is getting ready to move with his children to the big city and wife is at work, um, he they notice some drastic water level changes on one of their monitors that make no sense whatsoever. And he starts getting very nervous, um, the main character, Christian. Um, So even though he's not in the office, meaning in the little control room, um, they've already given him his going away, they've already said goodbye. He of course calls them, he of course goes back in panicking, and basically at this point, to them, seems a little unhinged. He comes in saying, this could mean something horrible. This could really be big. And they're like, no, it's just the monitors not recording it right. This never happens. The water levels can't be that low. It doesn't make any sense. Um, So at some point, they go down into the crevice and go and check it out. So he doesn't, so he makes his kids wait. They're not moving to the city quite yet. He's going to go make a quick trip down into the crevice with one of the other gentlemen and check it out personally. So they go and they check it out, comes back out, and his kids are supposed to be with him. He realizes his kids have left. He's been there for four hours. He meant to have them wait in the car for 30 minutes. He's been four hours. He messes up as a dad. They go to the hotel to meet mom. So he's sitting there as the husband being like, oh, crap, I just screwed up. My wife, um, Idun, I think, Adun, I forget how to pronounce her name, um, is going to be so mad at me. Oh, my God, my kids aren't here. So he rushes to the hotel, of course, apologizes to his wife. And it's like, I'm so sorry. And she's like, honey, this isn't your job anymore. It's time to move on. And um, so at this point, the little girl decides that she wants to spend her last night at their old house because it's too late to move to the city now. They're going to wait till the next day. So he takes her to the house. They have to pull old mattresses out of the dumpster to spend the night at the house and kind of have a father-daughter night there while the mother puts the teenage son up in the hotel, the very fancy tourist hotel, because he, of course, doesn't want to go and stay at the house. He wants to hang out at the hotel where the pretty little girl works up front with his mom and on and on. So that's so the family gets divided. Obviously, once again, a pretty traditional uh-huh. um, um, plot arrangement for the future. So the family is divided. As the evening goes on, um, if I remember correctly, we start hearing some sounds from the mountain. Um, there's some crackling. He starts getting on the phone, um, saying, hey, what's going on? Back to his old control center um, with uh, Jacob, who's in charge now there, and a few other characters that he's close with. Um, So they finally realize that it's a big enough deal. They see something else that's shifted that actually one of the crevices is starting to compress. And um, 
which is the opposite of what they ex would expect, that if the plates were starting to shift and a disaster were going to happen, they expected that it would actually expand. They start seeing it compressing, and they get really nervous. Christian's on the phone. He knows this is happening, but he doesn't go back. He controls himself. He says, nope, not my job anymore. I'm listening to my wife. I'm just going to take care of my daughter here, spend the night, not worry about it. As it continues, then the gentlemen that are still in the control center, um, Jacob and one of the other gentlemen who always is, seems to be kind of the grunt man who always goes out into the mountain and does this kind of work, go down into the crevice to check it out. And this is when stuff gets real serious. They have these bars that keep this crevice from closing in on them that are obviously there permanently. They're down in the crevice doing their research, looking around, making sure there's not too much shifting, seeing what they see. And the crevice starts very visibly closing in on them. Very Star Wars-esque. Mm. Um, starts closing in on these two men. I mean, with this huge roaring mountain literally closing its jaws around them. Wow. Um, so this is where the action really kicks off. Um, Christian starts being on the phone back to the control center. The two that are left in the control center are probably the two most naive on the team, don't really know what to do. Mm -hmm. There's a red button to evacuate the town that nobody ever wants to push. Mm. And Christian is saying, push the button. Push the effing red button, you know? <laughs> and the one nervous lady in there, she's holding her hand to the button, and she's like, doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to do it. And so finally they push it, and the evacuation goes across the city. Um, and they realize that this is the real damn deal. So all of this action is building, building, building. You got the crevice closing. You're starting to see the outside of the mountain and you're seeing things starting to shift. The plates are starting to shift. Christian has pieced it all together. From the time that the avalanche starts, you have, and, and of course Christian knows this, you have exactly 11 minutes to get to a certain level of elevation that will be protected from the size of the tsunami. So everybody has to get up the mountain from only two different passages to an exact elevation within 11 minutes once the red button has been pushed and once the signal has gone out. So you have his wife and his teenage son at the hotel. You have him at his old house, both relatively distant from each other and both closer to two opposite passages. And you have all of the tourists at the hotel uh -huh. who don't know anything about this disaster. And then you have the men in the crevice, one of which is well on his way to dying, um, all going on at one time. So like three parallel actions, uh -huh. jolting back and forth, starting to build, 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 pace, build, build, build. And the horn sounds over the town. So his wife realizes, here's the sound. And of course, being Christian's wife knows this is nothing to take lightly whatsoever, as most of the locals realize. The tourists, on the other hand, don't realize this so much. She has to run door to door, waking everybody up, saying, get out now. They're all at, trying to ask questions. They're trying to, oh, what do you mean, get out? They're, they're upper echelon, this and that. She's like, no, now, everybody, out now. They have a bus waiting out front. They're trying to get them all in there and up the hill. Everybody's in the bus. The pretty girl that her teenage son has a crush on is in the bus. Everyone's on the bus. She's about to get on the bus and realizes that her son, Sandre, is nowhere to be found. Of course, he's somewhere in the hotel. She doesn't know where. He's not in his room. So she has to run back into the hotel, hoping the bus is going to stay. By the way, I'm sure all this sounds really familiar to everyone. Uh. Um, to try to find her son. Another couple who is friends with her, the wife forces the husband to run back in and help her look as well. The husband doesn't want to go back in. He's very disgruntled. So they run back into the, back into the hotel to look for Sandre, her teenage son. He's downstairs with earbuds in and, and skating and um, in the basement. They finally find him, come back out, the bus is gone. They realize the tsunami is coming. 
At this point, we start getting some of the CG. This is the only CG in the film from what I could tell, and extremely well done. Um, that you start seeing the giant black wave rush out of the ocean. And as opposed to in American films where they will really stand on these shots, they only gave us glimpses of these shots. So you didn't have time to process the artificiality of it or the mm -hmm. artifice of it. Um, not to mention it was really well done and really well integrated into the landscape. And so the tsunami is starting to rise. And they realize there is no way they're going to take off and make it to the right elevation. So she knows of a bomb shelter in the bottom of the hotel. So she rushes them all down to the bomb shelter. By the time they get down there, the water is already rushing into the hotel. The tsunami has already hit. They have to force the water out and try to get the door closed while it's coming up to their chests. They finally get the door closed. They're all waiting in water up to their bellies or their chests, trapped in this downstairs bomb shelter. And that's where they're going to remain for a while. At, back to the other parallel action, Christian is in a massive debate of, do I go back to the hotel to try to save my wife, or do I get my daughter to safety up the mountain? His wife begs him on the phone before any of this other stuff had happened with her, begs him on the phone, just get our daughter to safety. Just get our daughter to safety. There's no way you have time to make it to the hotel. So he has this great ethical dilemma and finally says, yes, I have to save my daughter. And they'll make it, they'll make it. I know my wife, she's handy, she'll do this. And so he makes up the mountain with his daughter and they're, Running, 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 they come across their two best friends who are, they're all in a car and the cars are completely stopped because everybody's trying to rush up the mountain at one time. He realizes that the time is running down. He's got the 11 minutes on his watch. It's ticking, it's ticking. He's down to like three or four minutes and that they are way under the elevation level they need to be. So he, being the one person that has the knowledge, jumps out of his car with his daughter, picks up his daughter, starts running up the hill, banging on every other car saying, get out, get out, run, run, go by foot, go by foot, get out, get out. They all start rushing up the mountain and they're all you know nervous to get out of their cars. Some don't want to get out of their cars. He's like, you are dead if you stay here. Get out of your car. Leave your car. Get up the mountain. It's our only chance. And so they're like, by a split second, you're watching the tsunami come in and by a split second, trying to make it to a high enough elevation. Finally, he sees that one of his friend's wives is trapped, I believe trapped in the car or can't get out of the car or is panicking. I forget. So he sends his daughter with his friend and their children up the mountain, and he stays to try to save the wife of his best friend. And he gets in the car with her, realizes the tsunami's coming, he can't get her to safety, simply closes the doors and says, brace for the hit. Knows that he's about to go down, mm -hmm. that he sacrificed himself, knowing he would probably die um, in order to try to save her, or at least keep her company while she went down. Um, the tsunami does hit, the cars are tossed everywhere. We go underwater for a spectacular scene. All right, so once we go underwater, that him and his best friend's wife are trapped in this car, getting banged all around. The tsunami has hit. Tons of cars are being rolled around underwater. And they shoot it in something I actually saw Stan Brackage do in a completely black contrast, cutting light across the black contrast to only catch glimpses of images. And so while they're underwater, as opposed to using any artificial special effects, they actually shoot, appear to actually shoot underwater, completely blacked out, 
lots of cars floating around, lots of debris, a few dead people, and they just show you flashes of light cutting through the black. So they, it's so realistic, so believable, and so subjective to the experience and very psychologically disturbing. Mm. Um, I loved it because this is one of the moments that American Hollywood cinema would have gone special effects frenzy. Right. And instead of special effects frenzy, they did the exact opposite. They said, let's use in-camera effects. Mm. Let's use lighting effects. And let's make this very small thing on a very small budget look very big. And that's exactly what they did. Brilliant, brilliant underwater scene. At the end of it all, Christian does survive. The car lands. He realizes he, says he is sitting next to a dead woman who is the wife of his best friend, a very close friend of theirs. At this point, um, leap back to hotel, we have wife, teenage boy, and the husband of the couple that came in with them, the wife of him, has died. So we have the gentleman, the mother, and the teenage boy trapped in this basement bomb shelter while the water is rising. Once again, sound familiar? And so little by little, they swim to another nook to where they're barely keeping their heads above water, and they're basically trapped for the rest of the time, just buying time, trying to find any way out they can, banging on vents, trying to crawl up through vents, anything they can do not to drown, and the water's rising, rising, rising. So that's the other side of the parallel action. So Christian, little by little, makes his way from wherever his dilapidated, destroyed car landed and the water finally um, dissipated and finally all torn and beaten, makes his way up the mountain just hoping his daughter is alive, just hoping his daughter is alive and hoping he finds his wife and his son up there, hopefully on the bus. As he's going up there, he finds the bus from the hotel and everyone is dead in it. He goes dead body by dead body by dead body looking for his wife and his son. And in a kind of ambiguous moment, has this great moment of relief as he's seeing face after face of dead people that he knows, as well as lots of tourists, but yet this great relief of none of those dead faces are his wife or his son. Makes his way up the mountain, finds his daughter with his best friend and his daughter, and of course his daughter comes running to him. Great moment um, of, of, of um, reconciliation and, 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 and you know joy. And yet he has to look at his best friend and, and share that glance, that knowing glance of, hey, your wife didn't make it. Nothing said, of course. At this point, of course, Christian immediately says, I'm leaving you with Peter, my best friend. I think it was Peter. Um, leaving his daughter once again now that he knows she's safe. And I've got to go back to the hotel. And I've got to find my wife and my son, dead or alive. And he's pretty convinced they're dead because they stayed in the hotel while the tsunami hit. He can't fathom them being alive, but he has to go no. So he heads back out to make it to the hotel. By the time he makes it to the hotel, they are nearly drowned through a sequence of events. They're banging on something. He's banging on something, following sounds, trying to find them. Finally, he finds them. He has to swim underwater to find them. They're all there together. Um... And I forget how the sequence exactly plays out, but there's one point where Sandre can't hold his, the son can't hold his breath long enough, starts to pass out. His father breathes his breath into his son's mouth so the son can swim on with the mom. But then Christian basically drowns. We all think Christian drowns. Very convincing, <laughs> like disturbingly convincing. Yeah. Um, and so the wife swims back, pulls Christian up because he sacrificed himself for his son, pulls him up to this one dry pallet. They're finally out of the water. They think they're going to be saved, but it appears that Christian is dead. At this point, 
we go into that well-known gratuitous CPR scene um, uh-huh. where they try to bring him back for way too long. Way too long. <laughs> the man was dead. I mean, come on. He was so dead. Mm-hmm. And so it was so long that here was the brilliance of this, though, because I was really questioning this. I was really like, this is one of those disaster film things that's so unrealistic with these long pauses, these unrealistic pauses. And by the time you've done like four or five rounds of the CPR, the wife says give up, the son won't give up, that whole thing we've seen. But literally, like, two, three times longer than an American film would even take this. To where I literally had to stop and say to myself, and I had time to stop and say to myself, oh, my God, he might really be dead. And at this point, we are at the turning point between Act 2 and Act 3. So moving into Act 3, I'm literally sitting here thinking, my protagonist might have just gotten killed off. This is a European film. They might have done this to me. Mm-hmm. My God. And I'm in this weird situation of pulling for it cinematically. Like, please have the balls to do this. Please tell me you killed your protagonist. You're going to switch it over to the wife. And you're going to finish off the film completely against anything that would be expected. But, of course, he comes back to life. Mm. Um, spits up the water. And so I have, once again, this dual feeling of I feel the joy I'm supposed to feel that my protagonist that I'm invested in has come back to life at his moment of facing death, Mm -hmm. which is in every film right between Act 2 and Act 3. And they're all having to face death. And then this kind of disappointment in the fact that they didn't go there. (laughs) They, of course, make their way out up the hill, um, up the mountain, um, to finally the conclusion that we all know comes in the nicely packaged resolution of all the survivors kind of rejoining, the daughter rejoining, um, who had been left with the best friend. Um, the family is saved, all of them. Um, and, um, and there is absolute chaos and disaster around them everywhere. Their town has been destroyed. Everything has been destroyed. Um, and um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the synopsis. I do want to throw in one other thing about those long pauses. There were numerous times in this film that it really did not play into some of the more cliche, uh, I don't know, um, techniques that a lot of American disaster films play. But the one it really clung to was those unrealistic pauses. So when you see the tsunami coming in, Christian and whoever, the two or three standing with him, stare at the tsunami for what seems like 15 minutes before <laughs> before acting. I mean, they're just staring at it. And you're like, dude, you're wasting time. Get going. Come right. on. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what it's supposed to make me feel. Right. And so as I'm sitting there <laughs> this is the thing. wanting to bitch about these pauses, yeah. I'm like, it's effective. It's right. doing what it's supposed to do to me. It's driving me crazy. Right. I'm begging them to go. Uh-huh. And even though it's so stupid and so silly, how can I say it's wrong when it's working on me? A formula film or a genre film made well is a possibility and made with a unique artistic touch is a possibility that these things can be reinvented enough to hold to the paradigm, hold to the expectations, deliver the audience what they want and still have some artistic integrity. And I think this film did a pretty good job of that. Um, And I will throw it to Colin on that. This is a film that I was disappointed that I didn't get to see at this festival. It was when I saw it on the program. It was a. It was one that I immediately said, "Well, I'm I'm going to that because uh, it was actually the only film that I had heard buzz about or that I had been anticipating um, before the schedule for this festival came out." 
like I said, Roar Utaug is really, he's been a director to watch, uh, really, uh, for me for the past several years. He made his first film, his first feature, I believe in 2008. It was called Cold Prey or Frit Wilt. Um, oh no, not 2008, 2006. So it's actually been a while. Um, this is a slasher film. Um, very traditional, very down the line, uh, slasher film just set on a Norwegian mountain. Hmm. And, um, his, uh, the other film I've seen of his is called Escape from 2012. This is a medieval set chase movie. Very, um... I think the closest I can come is Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. It has a lot in common with that film in the sense that it's just a chase. Like the majority of the film is is just a, a sort of pulse pounding chase. But um, again, done with enough differences to really give it a a certain uh, a certain flair that you don't get in something like a Mel Gibson movie, for instance. <laughs> Obviously, as you can as you can tell from what I just said. The slasher film, the medieval chase movie. His other film that he's done that I haven't seen is called Magic Silver, which is a, a family fantasy film about um, gnomes living in a mountain. It's like a kid's movie. It looks uh, comparable to maybe uh, Never Ending Story or Willow, that kind of film. Um, Seems like he's just going through the gamut of American right. genres. Right, and so now he's, now he's got his disaster movie with a slightly bigger budget. Yeah, he is obviously, and um, this is kind of what I want to get into with this new wave of Norwegian directors. Um, there has been quite a little bit of a renaissance of, of Scandinavian genre films. And this is something I knew nothing about and been very interested to hear about. Prior to the last... 10 years or so everything coming out of scandinavia with a few exceptions was social realism sort of kitchen sink drama um art films but they never really had a genre um tradition per se especially in norway and that's true in most european cinemas there have been some really really incredible films that have come out of this movement probably the one most famous is let the right one in ah that's right a swedish vampire film from that's 2008 right. i think 2007 2008 yes. something like that um truly revisionist on the uh-huh vampire genre yeah but still very much you know, very firmly entrenched in the vampire genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been films like, from Norway, there have been films like Dead Snow, the zombie Nazi movie. Um, there have been uh, films like Rare Exports, a uh, Norwegian film, I think. Really, really cute um, Krampus movie, uh, which, which, which sort of harkens back to those... 80s uh, adventure films like Goonies, Gremlins, that kind of thing. Nice. Troll Hunter. Awesome <laughs> film. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Of course, not just in the horror and fantasy genres. There have also been stuff like the Millennium series, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. There is, like Todd said, there's something, and this is a great lesson. I love genre cinema, as you know. I love formula cinema. And yeah, the the synopsis that Todd just gave of this film you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking it just sounds like a big, long list of cliches, mm-hmm. which it is, but it's what you do with it. 
it's and how it's presented exactly all the subtleties yeah and, all, and, and embracing what filmmaking is that that you're not locked in to one particular approach um mm -hmm. there's a lot of possibilities there from the two films of his that i've seen there are and and from hearing what todd just described there are some there are some commonalities that i can draw he shoots all of his films in norway he shoots all of his films in it seems like rural sort of isolated parts of Norway yes. and he knows how to use that Norwegian yes. scenery very effective he knows how oh. to shoot the mountains how to capture the grandeur and also the the threat the the sort of primordial uh, ominousness of the scenery well, he you can knows tell how there's... to shoot the forests he knows how to shoot the lakes and the rivers and the oceans well I think that you can tell that there's probably an honesty to to that um, duality amongst um, the locals of, of Norway in mm -hmm. general yeah. or the citizens of Norway in general of understanding um, just taking from this film with the opening uh, news report and then the tags at the end actually gave you a little information too about the mountains and, and the threat that I do think they live under these threats very realistically so right. in presenting this to a, a Norwegian audience that he was playing on something that was a very realistic everyday fear was that these mountains all have the ability to shift plates create an avalanche it's a tsunami right and um and so i, I think living you know kind of like if you're living in california watching a earthquake disaster film it's gonna be very effective yeah and so that's that's the other commonality or one of the other commonalities that all these scandinavian genre filmmakers have in common is that there's definitely a love of and respect for their native lands and mm -hmm. the scenery and the natural scenery of their of their native lands you know uh, rare exports that i mentioned before uh takes place on a mountain uh they they all these films let the right one in they use the snow yeah. they use that very very particular and very distinctive Scandinavian scenery really well. So they're taking American genres and not just doing them with a European sensibility, but with a Scandinavian eye for scenery. Absolutely. And, um, it, and they really do seem to be embracing it with a, with a certain level of love and passion um, for yeah. their scenery and landscape. Um, there's even a line in this film where... They, they make the comment about, you know, um, you fall in love with the mountain or, or the mountain becomes you, you know, and um, like very literally pretty much um, depict that connection to the landscape with yeah. the people in the landscape. And another thing I can take away from uh, Utaug's films specifically is that he is a fantastic director of action and of suspense, mm -hmm. which is, it's all about timing, it's all about camera movement, choosing your moments, choosing your your angles. Um, I'm so it, glad you brought and that And pacing, and you know, both of his films that I've seen just crackerjack suspense sequences. This is actually huge. This, this is one of, and once again, doing a formula film in a different way, or doing a formula film in a quality way. Um, is absolutely as opposed to what I think of when I think of American cinema disaster films where it's just go hard, go fast. Um, when I see those sequences in a Michael Bay film, which I don't watch Michael Bay films, but I have watched the YouTube <laughs> clips mm -hmm. um, with those quick cuts and those handheld cameras, it seems as if none of it was actually shot listed. It's just kind of saying, go, go fast, go hard, capture what you can. When things explode, try to hit it. We got five cameras running, do it. Right. Um, and this film 
quite the opposite is every shot seemed thought out every shot seemed intentional um yeah and the what... camera wasn't moving when it didn't need to move it was mm-hmm. very restrained and in return the impact and the effect to me was was highly escalated because of that so now to go back to what todd and i were laughing about before that moment of you're wasting time just turn around and go (laughs) the reason i think that works in his films and and maybe doesn't work in other ones is um the next thing i'm going to bring up which is from everything i've seen by him and uh from what todd has just described to me i think this director utaug is a brilliant director of character and this is something that is so easily lost in a genre film his first film cold prey the slasher film and i I don't want it to come off like i think this is a brilliant film or that any of his films that i've seen are are brilliant masterpieces but um i have a lot of problems with cold prey but one thing that i don't have a problem with is the characters and if you've watched enough slasher films you know that their weakest point usually is characters you have those stock characters but he somehow makes you like them and it's a combination of the performances and the writing making you know like being careful actually putting some time in to flesh out these characters enough to make you there's enough there to when the shit starts popping off you actually care about who lives or dies thank you um that was actually number one note that i wanted to um bring out about this film was that he was truly a director of, of actors um, and and it was very, very evident throughout that the performances were so far above what I'm used to seeing in films like this. He still played, like Colin was saying, very true to the stock characters, played very, very true to what role they needed to play in this formulaic narrative without making them generic. I yeah. felt like I was invested, and it comes from good writing, good dialogue, good casting, and honestly, really good directing of the actors. Yeah, you know, like taking the time making making that a priority in your film because all the other shit all the explosions all the frantic action mm-hmm. it's not going to work if you don't give a shit and, about the people it's happening to and, and great lesson please trust me on this guys anybody coming out of film school anybody moving into film not out of film school anybody that wants to make films your number one job as a director number one everything else doesn't count if you don't do this well is to direct that means <laughs> to direct your actors Pay attention to your actors. Watch your actors with your own naked eyes. Talk to your actors like human beings. Create a bond with your actors. So, I mean, yeah, what we have here is a director who is really, really obviously interested in just playing with genre. And this is this movement. All these Scandinavian genre directors, they're putting their own little spin on these films that they grew up with. And I think it's a really exciting time, and I can't wait to see what continues to come out of this. So one more thing I want to talk about, and then I'll turn it back over to Todd for his final remarks. As you know, uh, by now, with me, I always like to get (laughs) meta-reflective. And um, what I was thinking about going into this, as I can't really speak to the themes you know, the the themes of this film without having seen it. But what I was thinking about was the relationship between the disaster genre and the horror genre. Um, you know, disaster films have been, obviously disaster, you know, there have, there have been films about disasters for as long as films have been made. Really the genre, it sort of crystallized into its own thing in the 70s. Um, the airport films... And then uh, 
films like The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure, big, huge uh, blockbusters with these large ensemble casts and very state-of-the-art special effects. Um, you know, the oeuvre of the producer Irwin Allen, I think that's that's where the disaster film really came into its own. Um, and it sort of has an interesting relationship with horror films because there are some horror films that are disaster films. Todd mentioned World War Z earlier, not a particularly good example of it, <laughs> but it, but that is sort of a zombie movie, a zombie apocalypse movie re-envisioned as a modern disaster film. And it was done so well that I almost forgot zombies were in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, a much a much better example, uh, Cloverfield, is an American genre film that does a very good job of combining the aesthetics of a monster movie with a disaster film. What I was thinking about is that the disaster film is, at the end of the day, a genre that is very beholden to traditional narrative. And I can't think of a disaster film that does not have a happy ending. Right. They're very, very um, beholden to having... Uh, a neat resolutions, good resolutions, positive resolutions, whereas a horror film, the horror genre, one of the things I love about it is that as far as formulaic genres go, it is by far the most subversive. You can have a horror film that does not have that traditional ending. Evil is not punished. Mm -hmm. uh, the status quo is not restored. Um, You're right. You're and, absolutely right. And so that's where I think the big break is. The disaster genre is the opposite of subversive. I think what it usually does is it reifies the status quo, the triumph of man over the elements, the triumph of the human spirit over over the most disastrous circumstances. And horror and, and disaster films, on the surface, they seem to have uh, a very similar ethos, which is what happens in worst case scenarios that's all the horror genre really is take a bad situation and then and then take it to the extreme imagine a, th a, you know, a thousand times worse than anything in real life the absolute worst case scenario imaginable what does humanity do in that situation and disaster film does the same thing except the conclusion of the disaster film is always man triumphs and there's always that uplifting status quo is reified maybe the town is destroyed but there's always okay now it's time to rebuild right. okay so uh, i'm i'm going to turn it over to Todd for his final thoughts and his brow all right um i think people probably have a nice guess on which way i'm going on this brow but maybe i left it a little open um once again this this was no masterpiece this this was a formula film that was made better than I've seen it made. Um, now, granted, that's also me not having seen a lot of disaster films. Never once was I not invested. I was actually quite invested. Never once was I not enjoying myself. I left the film with a huge grin on my face. It was a great late night screening, a great way to end my Friday night. Um, actually didn't even want to go to bed. Kind of wish there was another film for me to go to. I was like, I'm way too wired now. I'm way too awake. It really got me. Um, I was invested in the characters. I was invested in um, um, their struggles to su succeed. And the nicely wrapped up package at the end didn't even bother me because I was invested enough in the characters to buy in. Um, yeah, without a doubt, a highbrow. 
Um, I would watch this film again. Yay. I would advise anybody looking for an entertaining, disaster, big action film, go see this instead of whatever the next American release is because you're going to get some real filmmaking chops along with everything the American film would offer you too. And actually even more because it's paced and it's constrained and it's intelligent, honestly. Um, but at the same time, we'll hit every formulaic beat you expect it to hit. So highbrow all around for the wave. There you go. Yep. The wave, highbrow. 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 So, Todd asked me to go on uh, Sunday night. This was the, it was not only the last film that I saw at the festival, it was the very last film that screened at the festival. Uh, went back to Newcomb Hall Theater to watch a film called The Forbidden Room, which is directed by Guy Madden and also co-directed by Evan Johnson. Yes. There is a co-director. I don't know what the relationship is. I don't know who Evan Johnson is. I don't know what, how the work was divided. And I feel bad about slighting Evan Johnson in the, in the, you know, in, in the spiel I'm about to give. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably just going to say Madden does this, Madden does that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Johnson, uh, for all I know, could have been the driving creative force behind this, but sort of knowing what I know about Madden, um, I'm just going to stick with him. <laughs> and, yeah, knowing what I know about Madden is that he does like collaborating. However, it, I would tend to say that he's always the lead. Right, okay. That, that it's probably a guy Madden film if his name is involved. So this film begins with... A large-bellied, hairy, uh, middle-aged man with a very effeminate demeanor in a bathrobe uh, talking to you about how to take a bath and explaining to you uh, about how to soap yourself up about some of the things you might want to do while you're in the bathtub and about what a joyful experience it is to take a bath in warm, soapy water in your very own bathtub. Next, we go underneath the ocean, many, many, many fathoms deep in, uh, underneath the ocean in a submarine where there are five men who are panicked because... The explosive jelly that they are transporting in the submarine has started to melt. And it's melting and melting and melting. And one of the men whom they refer to as the keepers of the jelly, one of the men explains that the only thing that's keeping this melting explosive jelly from exploding and killing them all in the submarine is the pressure of the depth that they're at. So if they, if they, if they surface even a tiny bit, go up 
um, then the pressure will lessen and the jelly will explode. So they're in trouble. They're going to run out of oxygen eventually. And they're all, you know, taking really shallow breaths and trying to use as little oxygen as oxygen as possible because they can't surface because the jelly will explode and nobody really knows what to do. But with no real option of a resolution. No real option of a resolution. So <laughs> they have to uh, alert the captain and ask the captain's advice on what to do. The captain is inside one of his rooms and the men have to go further into the submarine going through different rooms and um, getting to finally arriving at the Forbidden Room, which is where the captain... First, they thought he was in his chambers, but his chambers were empty. There was another door leading to his mother's room. They go into that door, and only his mother's there, and then the final door is into the Forbidden Room. This happens at the very end of the film. I'm jumping ahead. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> a out of nowhere, in the water lock appears a stranger nobody knows how he got down there these many fathoms deep he should have been killed by the pressure if he was actually in the ocean um and they pull the stranger out and the stranger says the last thing i remember i was in a forest and then you cut to the man in the forest and there's a story of some woodcutters in this snowy forest who this is a story the man is telling after he arrives in the submarine. There has been a woman that was kidnapped by this band of outlaws called the Wolves. The Red Wolves, I think. And you'll have to forgive me. I didn't make great notes about this. I'm going from memory. And it was uh, a week exactly since I saw it. So they have to journey into this cave where the the where this group of bandits makes their home and they have to journey in there to rescue this this woman that's been kidnapped uh once they get into the cave or the one man who ends up going once he gets in there he starts to get the sense that the woman maybe doesn't really mind having been kidnapped and might be happier here than she was uh out, outside of the company of this group of bandits then she has a dream. So we are inside the submarine, inside the narrative of the woodcutter, and now we go inside the dream of the woman. And she is in a, um, a sort of an old-timey music hall type scenario where there's a man who sings a song about a guy who's obsessed with asses and great song. I think it's called Another Derriere or something. <laughs> great fucking song. If that doesn't get nominated for an Oscar for best song, <laughs> best original song in a film, I'm gonna I'm gonna boycott the the Academy Awards. Hey, if Uncle Fucker can win an Academy Award. Yeah, then... shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. <laughs> so and then one of the people in this narrative has a dream. And we go one level deeper, and it's uh, there's it's a there's a jungle scenario where natives are sacrificing a virgin to the volcano. The virgin has a dream, and we go one level deeper. And this is the time when I pretty much I pretty much forget what went on. But the entire film <laughs> is a series of narratives of little vignettes between I don't know five and fifteen minutes long. There's probably you know. 12 to 15 of these separate narratives and they're all nested inside of each other like 
like Russian nesting dolls, I guess. You go deeper and deeper and deeper into this narrative. Somebody tells a story, somebody has a dream, somebody has a memory, and each story is contained within the story that went before it. And sometimes we go back into, you know, there's a few times where we cut back into the submarine and then, you know, for a little bit of plot, and then we go right back into the narrative. Sometimes we go back and forth in the story, but usually we're moving deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and there are, I can't remember all of them. I could never remember all of them. And I will say that trying to recall what happened and trying to describe what happened in this film a week later feels very, very much like trying to recall a dream <laughs> and trying to explain what happened in the dream. Cause so many things don't make sense. The people's motivations, they do things strangely. Um, and there's a story of uh, a doctor who specializes in resetting bones and some uh, a woman who has been in a, a motorcycle accident and had all of her bones broken. And he resets her bones and they fall in love. But then he gets ambushed by a group of skeleton women that he has an orgy with and they entrap him. Um, and there's a story of a farmer who hires a new farmhand who is very clearly an escaped convict. There's a story of a group of child soldiers. There's a story of a man who kills his lover and uh, he kills somebody and then takes on the identity. But in doing that, he has to shave off his mustache and then the rest of the of the story is the dream that the mustache hairs have uh, leading to my quote from the start of this episode, uh, a title card that says dream, <laughs> dream, mustache hairs, dream. Uh, uh, uh. So I'm not going to give you, <laughs> obviously, like I said, I can't give you a synopsis of every little vignette, but they all have very common themes of depth they all have journeys inward. Not only are we journeying inside the stories within the stories within the stories, but there's all they all all of the stories in one way or another deal with journeys inward. The men are journeying inward in the submarine to the different rooms. Um, there's the woodcutter journeying inside the cave, deeper inside the cave, to try to rescue the woman. There's the idea of the skeletons, which are inside coming out and manifesting, uh, you know, what's inside manifesting outside and what's outside manifesting inside. Um, the act of storytelling, the act of dreaming uh, and madness, exactly what separates insanity from storytelling from dreaming those three concepts intertwined the uh, body consciousness the idea of confinement there's a story about uh, a psychiatrist who's on a train with a crazy uh, um, and in a mad mad person who is confined in a cage there's a woman who's on the train whom the psychiatrist they journey inward into her mind and uh, figure out her childhood trauma, which ends in a sexual assignation and the mad person escaping from the cage and jumping off of the train. So you can see how how the journey inward and the madness and the storytelling are all wrapped up in that story. Uh, the body consciousness, the idea of pressure, everything uh 
and everybody being under some sort of pressure, either physical or mental or emotional, and the malleability of identity, putting on masks, uh, changing identity. There are characters who Im- who uh, are embodied by multiple different people, and there are multiple characters embodied in the same person. Uh, these are some of the themes, the common themes that all of these vignettes touch on, and... That is, I challenge anybody to give as good a plot synopsis of this film as I just gave. I think you just did an exquisite job. Um, So I I will first open with um, saying that I'm very familiar with Guy Madden on an academic level. I have only screened two of his shorts. So that is my actual um, experience as far as actually viewing his work. Um, This was a director that I was going to bring Colin around to eventually regardless. However, I had planned on watching a feature length or two before I did so. Um, But thrilled to jump into it regardless. And um, so everything Colin said, once again, seemed to be very aligned with exactly what I expected of this film. And um, and has me every bit as interested as I was before hearing that synopsis, probably more interested. Um, the layer upon layer upon layer, um, the short vignettes um, being incorporated into a larger body. It seems like there was um, kind of um, one central metaphor of some sort with the um, submarine that bled into all the other ones. But other than that, it was a relatively loose connect from mm-hmm. story to story to story that they were finding random transitions that were dreamlike transitions. Um, all that makes complete sense. And I think um, I'll start off by, by pointing out a few of uh, Guy Madden's influences. Um, that when he went to film school later in life, that he was an interesting character. He majored in like economics or something in college. And then um, something yeah, that you would never imagine. That's so um, weird. And then went out and worked a bunch of labor jobs like the rest of us. Didn't do anything with his degree, like I mean, washing dishes and stuff like that. You know, uh-huh. like nothing moving towards art. And then eventually starts taking some film classes. And when he realizes that he really wants to make films is when he starts watching the films of uh, Louis Buñuel, mm-hmm. um, of course, um, and in particular a few of the ones that he collaborated with um, Dali on, um, The Golden Age. Um, I can't pronounce the um, Spanish version, but The the Golden Age um, being um, one of the films that he cites. Uh, David Lynch, Eraserhead, was a major influence on him. No surprise there. Um, a production company that actually put out David Lynch is one of the first production companies to actually put out Guy Madden as well. There's a lot of stream of consciousness with um, David Lynch and with Guy Madden that seems to flop back and forth between a very stringent conceptual intrigue that they want to pursue meets nuanced physical-oriented intrigues in their everyday life. Their, their intrigues in whether it be poo, or whether it be dead animals for David Lynch, mm-hmm. or whether it be, um, like um, Colin was pointing out, um, the dreamlike sequences, the, um, the body, the mustache, the hair. These are probably some of those quirky, specific, and probably intrigues of Madden, just like with David Lynch and the dead animals and yeah. some of those intrigues of, of, of David Lynch's doorknobs. You know, that, that body si- parts, I see, is a very right. that, pervasive the they, theme in this. The way they present them, tends to lead you to believe that there's something more to it. And I'm not sure that there always is. A lot of times I really think it's just a subjective intrigue and I want that in my film. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so very David Lynch-esque in that way, I would say. Um, the two shorts I've watched were very, very lo-fi. Um, the one in particular was very, very short, fast cuts, almost a rhythmic edit, almost Eisenstein-esque um, intentionally. Um, the other one was not. Um, 
very lo-fi, very, once again, specific to his own personal physical realm intrigues, um, mixed with high-concept, dreamlike um, kind of overtones. Um, no surprise also that he's a big fan of Fellini. Um, that's playing into some of the dreamscapes. Um, I am going to read a little something here that I think will bring some light to this project. Um, I did a little research beforehand on where this project came from, The Forbidden Room. And it's pretty interesting. Um, the name of this article, which I think is pretty good too, Lost in the Funhouse, a conversation with Guy Madden and Evan Johnson on The Forbidden Room and other stories. And so this will also bring into light a little bit on what role Evan Johnson played. And this is interesting because Guy Madden has done this in the past as well, that he's also a professor and he's collaborated with students that were normally short-lived collaborators. Um, you can make whatever guesswork you want to on why they were short-lived, but that he um, does collaborate. And I'll go ahead and read this um, paragraph that I think will say it a little better than I can. Madden is also a filmmaker who owes more than is acknowledged to his partners in crime. In The Forbidden Room, Madden is reinvigorated by his collaboration with co-director Evan Johnson, a former student whose only previous employment consisted of capping carpet cleaning fluid bottles. Johnson was also, I love that, Johnson was also one of the film's co-writers and supervised the exhaustive post-production. Can't imagine why it would be an exhaustive post-production, Malick-esque, I would say, um, which still continues. Shot at the Centre Pompidou on Montreal's uh, Phi Center. I have no idea what any of that was. Uh, the material began as the basis for an internet project. This is the part that really interested me. Um, the material began as the basis for an internet project, first called The Hauntings and now known as Seances, which will appear online later this year. Keep your eyes out. The impact of the internet on the film structure deserves more than just this passing note. Hmm. Together, Madden and Johnson have crafted a formal masterwork jolted by digital after effects, recreating the look of decaying nitrate shock, shape-shifting the image with multiple superimpositions and variegated color fields, um, on and on and on. So that, that kind of sums up what role um, Evans played in it. Um, that he was a student collaborator. Um, mm -hmm. So you can assume that it's probably a mentor-student relationship in it. But that Madden obviously had a lot of intrigue in this young man and in what concept he had. It might have been his original notion. I know that was the case with his earlier collaboration. I can't remember the kid's name um, with one of his students. But so this was originally planned to be, my understanding from what, what I read up on it, called Seance was going to be an internet project to where it's somewhere around 100 shorts that you could rearrange and piece and play in as many um, um, ways as exponentially are possible to recreate different various random stream of consciousness effects, stories, tones. And that was the idea was that the film could change every time off of these 100 shorts that were available to you to piece together. I don't know more than that. And that the Forbidden Room as a cinematic project fed first from that internet concept that that's really interesting i, I just interject for a second oh, here because i never thought because the film stylistically is so old timey i never stopped to consider the effect of the internet on this project and mm -hmm. as soon as you said that it was like a light bulb went off in my head because we talked about when we were talking about trick-or-treat we talked about this tradition of inyaritu and um, that sort of um, like uh, films with different vignettes that cut back and forth between them. And that's referred to as hyperlink cinema. This film, I think, 
feels more like it's deserving of the term hyperlink cinema than any of those any of those other films the uh, the Inyaritu stuff right because you can there is this sense that you can click on anything and it'll take you to another story and you can go back if you want you can you can you can jump around if you want and there's the sequencing is, is somewhat incidental. No, yeah, I, I've absolutely. never heard the term hyperlink cinema. That's that's really interesting, uh-huh. and I want to go look it up. It makes uh-huh. a lot of sense. And if anything, it almost seems like Guy Madden took that concept of hyper, hyperlink cinema and brought it into full formal literal um, yeah. approach with this, this is, with this film. Yeah, this is hyper hyperlink cinema. So it seems like <laughs> my best guess, and once again, all a grain of um, salt on everything I'm saying here. Um, go and do your research for yourself. I'm sure you'll find things that I'm doing a lot of guesswork. Things that are a little more um, firm, but I, my best guess is that the Forbidden Room is the construct of these hundreds of short films the way Guy Madden and Evan Johnson would put them together mm-hmm. and that it will be available to us to put them together as we please when right. Seance is released. That's super cool. Um, which is pretty damn interesting, which explains the very thin uh, linear connect to the, from vignette to vignette to vignette going yeah. deeper and deeper with just the one firm um, story that holds them together very loosely. Right. Um, as far as the lo-fi goes, that is a universal in Guy Madden films. Mm-hmm. Always, always, always. He's obsessed with silent era cinema and always plays retro to silent era cinema in his stylistic approach. So that is definitely a marker of his style. Early on, they started, him and some of his friends, when they were first getting kicking off, wanting to make the films that they wanted to make, started a production company that they called Extra Large Productions. Originally, it was going to be called Jumbo Productions, this is just funny to me. That it was going to be called Jumbo Productions, and they went out to go buy a pizza to celebrate, and they were going to go buy a Jumbo Pizza. And they didn't have Jumbo Pizzas. They only had Extra Larges. So they changed the name of their production company to Extra Large Productions. <laughs> and so, that, that sounds very in line with, with the guy Madden I know from this film. Exactly. To that where, stream of consciousness, like, okay, let's do this instead. He worked with a group early on, too, that he called... Um, the drones that were a, a group of actors that he used repetitively in some of his short films, and then he would also be in their short films. Um, Steven Snyder was one. Pais, um, you can look these guys up. Um, he thought very highly of both of them. They're both predominantly short filmmakers. Um, but one of the gentlemen from the drones, and I ha- always have to draw this connect too. I love these little connects. And I forget his name, but went on to become a writer on South Park. Oh. So once again, a nice little Stan Brackish to South Park, Guy Madden to South Park. I love our little feed-in from the, the, the extreme Lloyd fringes. Lloyd Kaufman? Yes, exactly. Our, wow. Our, our this... nice little feed-ins from the extreme avant-garde to South Park. So this is the third <laughs> this is the third link we have drawn from a film we've talked about on this podcast to South Park. And, and on, I think, every single one, one you would never fathom, The Connect. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Lloyd Kaufman cool, Lloyd seems Kaufman, yes. pretty clear. But yeah. other than that, yeah, no, the totally. Other two. Totally. The one I will point out, Guy Madden is highly, highly acclaimed, guys. Kind of like Stan Brakhage. He's not some um, on the fringes unknown or, or an in the know. That um, He's won infinite awards. Um, Canada holds him as a golden child of cinema, um, has all the respect and, of his nation. Um, and amongst the avant-garde and um, experimental, um, he's as highly um, recognized as just about anyone. He, he's, he's right there next to um, the names of Stan Brackage, David Lynch, and others that we um, associate with the extreme avant-garde. Uh, Guy Madden, I have actually seen a feature by him before 
It was uh, Dracula uh, pages from A Virgin's Diary. Which this, is also relatively contemporary. Yeah, got mad. I think 2002, I think, something like yes. that. Uh, I watched this last year, um, actually less than a year ago, so I have a pretty good memory of it. I liked it a lot. This is a film that is done, it, it's a ballet, and it's done very much in a silent film style. There are no deviations from that style. So I was under the impression that, and obviously, as Todd said, he always, that is always a touchstone of his, of his style. I was under the impression that everything he did was silent and in that style without deviation, but that is uh, not the case. Not at all. With not this all. film, um, well, I guess I'll I guess I'll just go right into it and talk about style. This film has sound. It uses a sound dialogue, but it also uses dialogue cards and title cards of the silent film style. I well. don't know if this is employed in any particular structured way, but there is no telling when somebody might speak and you hear the spoken dialogue and when somebody you might speak and you just see their lips move and then see the dialogue card in silent film style. Interesting. Sometimes both. Sometimes <laughs> you hear the words and you see the dialogue card at the same time. See, this are those moments I really wonder if it was random. <laughs> there are some characters who only ever speak words and there are some characters who you never hear their voice. You just see their, their dialogue. Um, sometimes uh, it, it, I wonder if it's random too. Maybe it was. Uh, I always have I, to assume, and, and this is just playing on my own subjective approach to um, conceptualizing uh, more experimental projects, but that I always have an intent. I always have a rhythm to these sorts of techniques if right. I use them. And I always assume that, that a filmmaker does, no matter how abstract that rhythm may be or how abstract that concept may be. Um, but there is always the viable possibility that it's simply a random intrigue yeah. and we're going to throw it in. It's just like like because. extra large. Oh, they don't have jumbo pizzas? All right. Our, <laughs> our company's going to be extra large. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So there, and it's not black and white. There is color. There's lots of color. Uh -huh. There is color and sound, but you still have title cards and you still have some black and white sequences. Sometimes it, uh, there is color in the old silent film way of the entire frame is tinted, either either in post-production or that. the entire thing was shot through a, a filter. It's whatever resources I have to create the image and the concept that I want to put out is, is fair game. It took me a while to get into the rhythm of the film because it started and the first thing I thought was, oh, there's color and sound. I was surprised because I thought it was going to be a silent film, a, a, a black and white silent film. And the, the next thing that I was, I, was, I was surprised by was how much humor there is and how much absurdity there is. And I had thought, because also my only exposure to Guy Madden had been the Dracula film and a few shorts, like, you know, minute or shorter mm -hmm. shorts that I had seen by him. And it all seemed kind of serious. Mm -hmm. Like Todd said, he, I think he has this reputation as being a very, very esoteric, inscrutable, serious filmmaker. But there is so much humor in this. And I don't know how much is the influence of Evan Johnson, like like how much of that he brought to his. But there's like a, a, a silliness to the whole thing. You open up to this, uh, this very fey, bear-like guy in a bathrobe talking about like explaining to you how to take a bath this was i found out that this was um written by john ashbury the poet 
that Madden has a, a collaboration relationship with, and it was it was John Ashbery's reimagined script for a lost exploitation film by Dwayne Esper, the guy that did uh, Maniac, called How to Take a Bath. So, nice. <laughs> so it's it's a very very strange uh, concept. But, but so you got this very fey guy telling you how to take a bath, and then there's the whole uh, there's the dream mustache hairs dream, which <laughs> still makes me laugh when I think about it. There's so much humor in this film. I was surprised by how goofy it was in parts. So that that kind of took me out, and then but but pretty shortly I got into the rhythm of this film, which is that it's not it's not Guy Madden doing a silent film. It's mu- it's that and everything else. Yeah. Every conceivable style of filmmaking is present in this. There's German Expressionism. There's early Hollywood. There's classic Hollywood. There's 40s noir. There's 30s serials. There's animation. There's the influence of music videos with the quick cutting. There's every style of filmmaking is present here in some way there's you'll be in a situation that reminds you of the phantom carriage or some you know old old german expressionist with the with the uh with the like cardboard cutout sets and the silhouettes and the weird angles and then all of a sudden there's a cut and you're in a 60s european like euro sleaze you're in a 60s european like softcore porn (laughs) something like that and the color changes um Every different vignette embodies a different style of filmmaking or sometimes multiple different styles of filmmaking. And this goes back to that idea of identity, the malleability of identity that I that I explained when I was talking about themes, not just the characters in the stories, but the way the stories themselves are shot. There's all this constantly shifting um, filmmaking identity that, that takes place. And... Um, they the film itself is constantly shifting there's like todd described the shape shifting of the image on the screen and there's lots of of burns where where like the film burns and kind of melts uh much like the melting jelly in the in the submarine there's lots of blowouts there's this sort of constant flicker you know how you watch a lot of old silent films and yes. all through it there's this con- I guess cuz like it was a hand cranked yes. camera and there's this constant flicker to all through the film there's just this sometimes very subtle sometimes extremely overwhelming uh flickering and um it was an inconsistent um, rhythm in the mechanics of projection at the time there you go. as well as them playing with uh different uh um frame ratios that, right. that okay. there was a debate between 16 all the way up uh-huh. to 30 and silent air actually played in between before they rested on 24 frames a second. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. It makes sense. So, um, and so there's motion, there's this constant motion all through the film is burning. There's, there's like fraying at the edges. It seems like there's those weird lines that yes. like vertical lines through the frame that happen a lot of times. And, there's this sense of constant flux. Everything is in constant motion. There's very little, and obviously all the quick cutting, all, you know, the super uh, crazy montage 
there's never any stillness in this film except for one shot when all of a sudden all the grain goes away, the burning goes away, the flickering goes away for like four seconds. There's this just random shot, randomly inserted, reminded me of, and this is another thing I'm going to get to, Brackage, that random shot of the of the columns in the um, Dogstar Man, where everything yes. else has been naturalistic, natural world, and then seemingly at random, just a shot of columns, and then you go back to the natural world. Yes. Same thing here. There's this random moment of stillness in the middle of this, and then it's back to the chaos. Um... So the burns, the blowouts, the flickering, the shifting. I wrote down in my notes, I'm not sure how much of it was practically achieved. I wrote, my guess is, a fair amount of CG. And Todd is saying that that in his reading he found out that, yes, there is a fair amount of CG in this. I don't know how you could accomplish all of this. Some sort of digital post-production effects. I don't know how you could accomplish all of this with film manipulation. Some of it you could. And I'm not even, and even to the point that I would need to do the research, that I'm not even sure that some of this wasn't shot on digital. Yeah, okay, so, it might have been. No, that yeah. makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love the notion that that it probably could have been a 75-minute film, could have mm-hmm. been a three-hour film, could have been a 60-minute film, yeah. could have been a... Well, what it did what it did clock in at, uh, it ended up, was a 130-minute film. Right. Which is the longest film I saw at the festival. Um, How did it, that play to you? Well, it, it's interesting, you know. Um, it, 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 it gets to the point where... It takes a good 20 minutes, or at least it took me a good 20 minutes to settle into the rhythm of what this film was offering me and sort of get into the spirit of it. Like I said, I had a few hurdles to overcome at the beginning. You can, you know, chop those off. So really we're dealing with like a 110 minute movie Okay. once I settled into it, which isn't that bad. And um, I mean, I squirmed a little bit in my seat. Um as the night wore on and you have to remember you know it was midnight by the time this was done so i was i had work the next day so i was already a little tired to begin with um it 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 did get a little exhausting by the end of it i think it was a bit of a challenge to sit through and it's it's kind of sensory overload right when you really well, you get to the point that, I mean, I don't know how much of us, you know, aside from a Michael Bay film, <laughs> I don't know how, how, how often we really sit through over two hours of constant flashes of light and weird noises and things that don't make sense. And, and it just keeps and... and quick cuts and chaos and it just keeps keeps moving but it doesn't feel like a Transformers film. It doesn't feel like an assault on your senses. It's not just, you know, some some hack sort of throwing things in your face for for over two hours. It feels like your weird uncle being like, hey, let me show you some crazy shit. <laughs> but in a nice way, you know? Like in nice. a in like your 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 weird, curmudgeonly eccentric, but ultimately harmless old uncles showing you like uh hey here's some crazy shit i drew when i was tripping like if you were sitting <laughs> in the, in the 70s. like if you were sitting in the basement with herzog and with him showing you a bunch of um incomplete projects of his i wouldn't go into the basement <laughs> with herzog if he invited me especially after seeing in the basement i don't want to see herzog's <laughs> basement <laughs> in my research i saw that um well first of all they referenced that post-production was not yet finished uh, meaning that this could go on infinitely. The complete film that you see 
you may not really be the complete film. Um, that, that, that this is simply when they decided to stop, um, very much like many um, um, still artists. Um, but, um, and so there's definitely that element that they, they brought up that they were not necessarily completed with post-production. You line that with the project of the seance being um, an online that is supposed to be kind of an infinitely um, possible um, collection and piece together of these shorts. And then in an interview I was reading that the interviewer actually asked them about the length and, and very stringently made a point that they felt it was a bit too long. And um, Guy Madden's original response um, before going on to explain a little was, thank you. <laughs> and, and then Evan Johnson's response, or Johnson, what was that right? Evan Johnson? Yeah, Evan Johnson. Uh, his response was, uh, yeah, we wanted, or something along the lines of, um, we wanted you to be a, uh, have a little bit of fear that it may never end. <laughs> Just a little bit of healthy fear that it may never end. <laughs> uh -huh. There is this sense you get towards the ending of, oh, is this is this it? Oh, no, wait, is this it? Oh, okay, well, okay, here we go. Here we go. Now this is, oh, wait a minute. Right. You know, and sometimes and that you do get hurt. the sense because you're coming back. Like, as I said, this film does have a structure. It takes you ever deeper into the layers. And then once you get to the point where you feel like a film is right right cuz you have you watch enough films you sort of get this internal clock of well it's been over, it's been about 2 hours this should be wrapping up around now and that's exactly when you start you start to move back and you move back up through a few levels of story and you're like okay this makes sense we've gone as deep as we're going to go now we're moving back out again and then as soon as you get into that mindset all of a sudden it takes you more levels deeper uh, <laughs> you know which so, is probably exactly the point that the interviewer was uh, talking about when they right. said that 75 minute mark was when they really felt like it could have concluded right yeah so i do i think evan johnson i think it 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 it, it makes sense, and I think they achieved what they set out to achieve. <laughs> you do feel like, oh, this could go on forever. <laughs> so, a healthy fear. A healthy fear, yeah. <laughs> so it was a challenging watch. Oh, oh, yeah, and there's also one of the vignettes where there are title cards that come up. At first, there's a title card that comes up that I think says, The Last Bit, or something like that. <laughs> I forget what it is. It says, like, The Last Bit, and then... That story goes, and then there's another title card that comes up and says, The Real Last Bit. <laughs> <laughs> they knew exactly and what And then there's another doing. one that comes up and says, The Actual Final Real Last Bit. And, like, you know, it does that several <laughs> times. Back into the absurdity <laughs> and the humor as well, yeah, and how yeah, playful yeah. they're actually being, which I really, really like. I highly, highly encourage everyone to go out and... Um, and explore Madden's films um, more thoroughly. Um, I think it's a very, very rich filmography, and I plan on doing the same. Um, this is something that um, you may hear me make references to in the near future, because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to go on a little Guy Madden fest here, as he's one of the ones that's um, slid um, into the cracks for me a little bit, um, and I've missed out a little bit on. So, um, and especially the love that I have for the few shorts that I have seen of his, that I'm very excited to, um, to take on the challenge of sitting through this feature length. You know, I always try to be fair and give um, give both the positives and the negatives. I've kind of run out of negative things to say about this. I, the only real negative thing I can say is that it's not for everybody and be prepared. Um, I am very glad that I was prepared from doing this podcast and from things yeah. that Todd has shown me and also going into it with a mindset of um, – I'm really going to try to appreciate this for what it is. I think um, 
you know, I often think about how I'm primed to appreciate stuff and the attitude that you go into something with. Like I said, once I got into the rhythm of it, I think it was really, really, really incredible all of the filmmaking styles that he managed to evoke. And if you take any, I mean, this takes a master filmmaker to do. I was just about to say. There's so much skill and talent that needs to be brought to bear into, hey, shoot this five-minute vignette like a 20s German expressionist film, and shoot this other five-minute vignette like a 40s noir, and then shoot this this film over here, shoot this uh, seven-minute vignette in the style of a... Uh, a 30s adventure King Kong type movie and then put them all together and make transitions so that the viewer understands that this is all part of the same package and there's like some sort of logic to it. Absolutely. And it's not an easy task. Not, not at all. And that's, I kept thinking about that, the, the sophistication and the cinematic knowledge that it, it, it's mind blowing to me that it, that it even takes to be able to even approach a project like that, that, that just, infinite understanding and knowledge of cinema it's so obvious that he is the quintessential student of cinema yeah kind of like a scorsese in american cinema that's constantly drawing on things that have been done before in a very specific way and making lots of homage and play to previous cinema that it seems like guy 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 madden um as the avant-garde guy van sant yeah exactly guy van sant that guy madden as the avant-garde um perhaps the avant-garde version of that um just um quintessential um student of cinema that that wants to pull on everything he can and loves it all yep absolutely i was expecting i was expecting one thing i got something entirely different it took some adjusting and it was a little bit of a challenge but i can safely say that what i i was very entertained and this is the thing like you can you can stand back and regard a work of art as being tremendous and having appreciation for all the work that went into it and be able be able to point out subtleties in the technique and what 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 skill it took to accomplish this and to accomplish that that detail there but ultimately if you're not entertained what's the point right and i found was it effective on me right and right. i found every single second of this to be in, extremely entertaining am i engaged is it evoking emotion is it making my brain work is it absolutely all of the above all of the above so uh it was it was a brilliant film i encourage i encourage everybody to go see it i gave it a five on the ballot and i give it a highbrow on the podcast yay highbrow (laughs) one more quick thing (laughs) one more quick thing i want to say about this film I didn't talk any about the music choices. Mm. Really, really interesting music, and there's there's pop songs in there. There's like the whole gamut of 20th century music, just like the whole gamut of 20th century film is expressed. Be. The entire gamut of 20 of 20th century music is is utilized. And um, one thing that extremely near and dear to my heart. What I consider to be one of the most perfect pieces of music ever written and incredibly emotionally evocative for me and always has been, Arnold Schoenberg's Transfigured Night uh, makes an appearance in this film. And uh, that's the uh, what I've chosen as the intro music for this podcast. Uh, so you've already heard it by now. But um, go listen to the whole piece because beautiful beautiful stunning piece of music so as soon as i heard that in the film it was fairly early on it was in it was in the first half an hour i uh 
my heart my heart was a little bit of flutter <laughs> nice <laughs> so uh Very yeah nice. there you go uh, forbidden room highbrow hello i'm marv today we're gonna discuss bands Heaven surfaced in once. We need food, we need oxygen. Mm, that's what bathing is all about. Have a nice day. A moment. A word about next week. Yeah. We've already spoken about next time, uh, but it's been a while. So for those of you who do not remember... Todd and I have already assigned each other our films for next time. Um, I have asked uh, Todd to check out from 1977, directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. The film is called Alucarda. Excellent. So um, I gave Colin for next week, Pedro Moldovar, Spanish filmmaker, quintessential to Spanish cinema. Um, a nice little crossover between art cinema and mainstream cinema, which I will get into next round. But um, Pedro Moldovar is uh, all about my mother. From 1999. From 1999. Todo sobre mi madre. Indeed. So uh, you can look forward to that for next time. And until then. I'm Todd. Keep it artsy. I'm Cullen. Uh, you and your mustache hairs both better keep it crass. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. The email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you can say hi on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. They have a white logo. We have a red and black one. Should be pretty easy to tell who's who.